0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we've been studying the parables of our Savior, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4. We are a little over two years into Jesus' earthly ministry. And the reality is things are not going the way that the disciples expected them to be going. Jesus had started His ministry, His earthly ministry, about two years prior And there are crowds that are following Him, but they're following Him just because of the miracles that He's doing, not necessarily because of His teaching. There are not many real followers. And I think the disciples at this point are wondering, they have to be wondering, are many being saved? Is this a failure of a mission? Are we doing things that are wrong? Are are we not doing things the way we should be doing things, such that there are so few of us? When, When the disciples knew, Isaiah chapter 9 of the government that the king will usher in, of which Jesus claims to be that king, there will be no end. How is there going to be no end to this kingdom when we have twelve followers of the king and we know one of those followers isn't even genuine? What's happening? We know, as we studied at the beginning of the summer, we know that Jesus began speaking in parables because of the attrition that he faced with the Pharisees, and he knew the truth that I've been telling through uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that they committed against him and against the miracles that he had done. They do not want to believe. They have hardened hearts. They will not believe. They are defiant and determined in their unbelief. So I'm not going to give them any more truth in a very explicit way. I'm going to hide the truth from them and give it to those that would have ears to hear. Imagine the questions in the disciples' mind. What, what is going on? Now he can't even speak explicit truth of the kingdom. He has to conceal the truth. People want him dead. This is a failure of a mission. I think these questions are rolling around in the minds of the disciples. And maybe you and I have been tempted to, to think those questions, to think those thoughts as well. Maybe in your own personal evangelism, you wonder, why are why are there so few people that will even respond to me as I share the gospel? Why, why are the people that I invite to church, they never come to church? Why, when I speak boldly, proclaim the truth compassionately of God's Word, why are there so few people listening and hearing and responding? Maybe even in our own church, in our own midst. We've been at this for almost four years Many people have thought, well, why aren't we growing faster than we are? Yeah, we've doubled since we began, but shouldn't it be doubling more quickly, exponentially? Why is it so hard to get people to enter the, the church and to, to be saved and to become members and to be plugged into the church? Is there something that we're doing wrong? Is there something that we aren't doing that we need to start doing? What's going on? And as the disciples are wondering these questions, and maybe you and I as well, I think this morning Jesus will recalibrate our hearts. I want Him to recalibrate our thinking on how to be successful in evangelism, on how to minister faithfully with the gospel that we've been entrusted. So let's read these verses together. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26 and reading through verse 34. Jesus was saying, "The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest is come." And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when, th- when sown upon the soil, though it's much smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up. It becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Father, as we come to this text, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I know I have been greatly encouraged this week by studying these verses. And God, I pray that our church would be recalibrated around the truth that is found in these verses. That Jesus, as He spoke this parable over 2,000 years ago, He would speak to our hearts this morning through the text. And that He would change our thinking. He would change our affections. And He would reorient our energy and our desires around the gospel. God, please do a work in our hearts. We long to serve, we want want to share the gospel, but I pray that the energy and the desire that we have to share the gospel would be focused and rightly informed by your word this morning. So give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law, and may Jesus be glorified in our midst this day. We pray in his name. Amen. Two parables this morning, two points. First parable found only in Mark's gospel. Second parable found in Matthew and Luke as well. We're just going to look at these two parables together and two very simple points. Number one, it is surprising how the kingdom grows. That's the first parable. It's surprising how the kingdom grows. And number two, it's surprising how big the kingdom grows. So it's surprising how the kingdom grows and it is surprising how big the kingdom grows. Verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, the kingdom of God is is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So he's speaking of the kingdom of God, the the spiritual domain of salvation under which all believers exist. Yes, there is a reality of the kingdom happening now. It's been ushered in through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is our king. We are citizens of another kingdom. But we are not in a physical kingdom that is yet to come, and we know that it will, according to Revelation chapter 20. Jesus is going to bring and establish a physical, literal kingdom in the future. So, there's an already not yet. We are already in the kingdom in an invisible spiritual sense. There is a kingdom yet to come. And Jesus is speaking about this invisible domain where believers exist under the kingship of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, how do people get saved? How are we to understand salvation of souls being ushered into the kingdom? How does that happen? How does that work? He started earlier by speaking a parable of the the sower in the soils. You sow the seed of God's word, there's four different types of soil, three of them are not saved, one of them is saved, two of them look like they might be saved, but they're not saved. They receive the word, but then they reject it ultimately. And Jesus is saying, as you sow the word of God, people will reject, people won't receive, and it's not anything based on what you are doing. The parable of the sower and the soils is not really about the sower, it's about the soils. And then he says, you've been given a lamp, you've been given a light. Verse 21, he goes to the next parable, you've been given a lamp, you've been given a light. Let it shine. Don't be discouraged. Let it shine. Let people see it. And I think somewhere between verse 25 and 26, disciples are saying, why are we letting the light shine? We're sharing the gospel and nobody is coming into the kingdom. What are are we doing wrong? That's why verse 26 starts by saying, Jesus was saying, that's continually. He kept on saying. This is a parable, one of many that Jesus was sharing to encourage the hearts of his disciples. As the disciples are wondering, are are there very few being saved? Jesus is going to continue to encourage them by saying, I think you have a misunderstanding of how the gospel works. So how does the gospel work? How does salvation come? How does the kingdom grow? Here's the parable. A man casts seed upon the soil. This is a man takes seed out of the seed bag, throws seed on the ground. He's a farmer, he's a sower, and he's an expert at growing crops. And we need to have that in our mind based on what's going to be said in just a second about him. He goes to bed, verse 27, he sows the seed. He goes to bed at night. He gets up by day, and the seed sprouts. Uh, the seed has sprouted. The seed has grown. How? He himself does not know. So he's an expert. He, he knows But he doesn't know. He didn't make anything happen. He just threw the seed in the ground. He left. He went to bed. And when he woke up, there's a little shoot growing up out of the ground. So the farmer, the expert in agriculture, doesn't even know how this is happening. He is not making it happen. How does it happen? Jesus tells us, verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. It's dependent on the soil and the seed and it produces crops by itself. Those two words, by itself, in my Bible, that's one word in the Greek. And you know the word automatas, automatically. It just grows automatically. This is divine automatically. God grows it. It's actually a word that is only used one other time in the Bible. It's used by Luke in Acts chapter 12, verse 10, when Peter is in prison and the gates open up the shackles fall off the gates open up by themselves automatically by themselves divine automatically divinely automatic so god does it jesus is saying god does it god grows the seed and it grows in stages first the blade then the head then the mature grain in the head it grows in in seasons it grows in uh, different forms of transformation it grows in stages but, verse 29, when the crop permits, when it is grown, and when it is useful and fruitful, the man will put in the sickle because the harvest has come. There's usefulness. There's fruitfulness. That was the whole point of the first parable. Uh, the sower sows the seed into the four soils. Only one produces fruit, and only the, those that produce fruit are truly saved. They are proving, their fruit is proving that they have been saved. So Jesus says... Once the seed has gone into the soil and God brings the growth and it grows up and it's useful and it's fruitful, now the sickle can be put in and it can be used, whether that's for discipling other people, that's sharing the gospel. and In whatever capacity, now it is useful for the master. Now, Some people think that this parable is about Jesus coming back because they see that word sickle and they think about revelation when Jesus is going to come with the winnowing fork and the sickle and come and divide the sheep and the goats. And This isn't about Jesus coming back mainly because Jesus isn't sleeping. Um, Jesus doesn't go to bed at night and then get up in the day. This is a very simple parable. The disciples are wondering, how does the kingdom grow? What do we need to do such that we can make the kingdom grow? And Jesus says, you don't do anything. Throw the seed, that's all you do. God brings the growth. There's no explanation of this parable. There doesn't need to be an explanation of this parable. It's so obvious in the context of what is taking place in Jesus' ministry. We can't save anyone. We don't do that work. God does that work. We just throw the seed, we go to bed, and God does the rest. God does all of it, really. So, based on this parable, how does the kingdom grow? It's surprising, this is point number one, how, it's surprising how the kingdom grows. How does the kingdom grow? And why is it surprising the way it grows? Let me give you three ways, based on these verses, that the kingdom grows. Number one, the kingdom grows by the power of the word. The kingdom grows by the power of the word. How did this seed grow? Did it grow by the work of the farmer? No, it's not by the hard work of the farmer. It's not by any ingenuity of the farmer. It's by the power of the seed. The seed is sown. The seed takes root. The seed starts to grow in good soil. God brings about the growth. The sower... Notice all he does. He throws the seed, he goes to sleep. Now, if the seed is the Word of God, which clearly it is, if the seed is the Word of God, then we do have a responsibility. This passage, this parable, does not make us lazy, it makes us very energetic and faithful in throwing the seed. So don't go to bed if you haven't scattered the seed. You have to sow the seed. If you, if you have a seed bag of the gospel, which all of us as believers do, and we think, I'm tired, I'm going to bed. If you haven't sown seed that day, this passage is saying, you haven't done your job. You can't go to bed yet and rest well. You need to scatter the seed. But the flip side is true. If you have scattered the seed, if you're faithful in scattering the seed, then you can go to bed and sleep and rest easy. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. We are not the cause... Of salvation happening. We are the means of truth going out. But we don't make somebody get saved. So, if you've sown the seed, rest. It's in God's hands, it's God's work to do. And frankly, God manages just fine without us. He doesn't need us. We can tell the truth and God will do the rest. One of my professors used to say, We throw the seed till our arm is dead, we throw it and then we go to bed. Just throw the seed until your arm hurts and then go to bed. You've done your job. You don't have to fret. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to worry. You pray, God, I've done my job. Now please bring fruit. It's by the power of the word that the kingdom grows. Your usefulness in gospel evangelism is proportionate to the seed sown. And you have no other part in doing anything in their life. The word is enough. The word is enough. Notice that Jesus is noting our irrelevance relative to the Word of God. He's noting our irrelevance relative to the Word of God. He's not noting our absolute irrelevance. We do have a part to play. But compared to the Word of God, we don't do the work. We don't make the fruit grow. We trust that the Word will do the work. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers what? They labor in vain. Um, This is Isaiah 55. You preach the word of God. When the word goes out, it will not return void back to God. It will not go back empty to Him. It always accomplishes something. So we have power in the word that we proclaim, in the word that we preach. That's why we preach the word. That's why we get up every Sunday and we preach from God's word. We don't preach our own opinions, we don't preach our own points. I'm not concerned that you remember any points in my sermon. That's not what I'm after. That's not why I preach. You you may only remember a handful of sermons in your entire life. Um, But just like you probably only remember a handful of meals that you've eaten in your entire life. You don't remember every single one. What did you have for breakfast on Thursday morning? Or for lunch on Tuesday afternoon? We don't know. We don't really remember. They don't always stand out to us but they keep us alive. So, too, we don't always remember. My goal is not that you always remember every point that I preach. Sometimes I don't even remember the points that I preached from the previous Sunday. But sitting under the Word of God Sunday after Sunday, midweek after midweek, letting the Word of God pour over us, the power of God's Word keeps us alive. It sustains us. So, therefore, when I'm preaching or when I'm sharing the Gospel, my goal, I only have two things in mind. I only have two aims. I want to be faithful in sowing the seed, I want to be faithful in preaching the truth, and I want to be faithful in diving after your soil. Uh, Some of your soils need to be um, redone completely, hard hearts that need the Word of God to break in and crack open and cultivate. Some of your soils are ready for the Word of God, they're growing fruit already. My job is simply to preach the Gospel, your job is simply to preach the Gospel, to preach the Word of God and let the power of God's Word do its job. Sometimes I think that when we're sharing the gospel, we we look at other people's souls as if they were big concrete bunkers, six-feet-walled bunkers. And How are we going to get in? And and we take the gospel, and sometimes we think that the gospel is just like a little pebble. Just bink, I want to break down the wall. Bink, I want to break down the wall. It's no wonder. If we don't believe that the Word of God has power... We're not going to be throwing it constantly in people's souls. The reality is the power of God's word, it's not a pebble that we're just constantly think, think, think off of this concrete block wall. The power of God's word, this is a grenade. We're lobbing grenades into souls. We're lobbing grenades into the bunker. And we will let God pull the pin when he wants to pull the pin. It's just our job to be faithful and throw the word of God and let God do what he wants to do. So what's our job if it's only by the power of God's word? You remember in the movie, for those of you who have kids or, or like kids' movies, in the movie Finding Nemo, uh, you remember uh, Dory's little phrase, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep... Our job as believers, just keep sowing, just keep sowing, just keep sowing. Until the day we die, just keep throwing seed. Just keep being faithful to throw seed. It's by the power of God's word and by the power of God's word alone that fruit will happen It's surprising how the the kingdom grows, number two, because it's outside of our control. The kingdom grows, number one, by the power of the word. The kingdom grows, number two, outside of our control. We can't manufacture any change to happen. We can't manufacture. We must understand our own limitations, and this man does. He knows I can scatter the seed, but then I go to bed. I don't do anything else. This is certainly one enormous way to keep a believer humble. This parable, you don't do anything. Just throw the seed and go to bed. You cannot be prideful about people that have been converted under your ministry because you didn't do anything. You just share the gospel and let God do the work to change hearts. It's outside of our control. But at the end of the day, I believe that we in our pride, we think that we know how the kingdom works. We think we know. We think we know. If we do this, this will happen. If we do this, this will this will make converts. The disciples thought they knew how the kingdom grew. The kingdom grows by a sword. And Jesus shows them, no, the kingdom actually grows by me dying. Jesus is always breaking the rules, and here he does it as well. Do you want growth to happen? Just be faithful to sow the seed and then go to bed. It's outside of your control. And it's amazing what you can accomplish without being the Holy Spirit. It's not our job. So we do desire to make things happen. It's very frustrating when we're left powerless. But the kingdom runs counter to our wisdom, and it grows in spite of us. Maybe the disciples are wondering, should we change our, uh, the, the way that we're sharing the gospel? Should we change uh, the manner in which we are presenting things? Should we change the programs that we have? Should we do something different? And I believe that's usually where the flesh goes. The, the flesh responds when we see, okay, people are not growing in a massive way at our church or in my own personal evangelism. People are not responding. I need to do something different. The, the flesh responds with, we need new strategies, we need, we need new programs. It's got to be our fault, we're doing something wrong. And then we end up saying, okay, somehow I need to overcome the sinner's resistance to the gospel by pleading to things that are fleshly in their own hearts. By pleading with things that will make the message uh, more... Um, palpable for the sinner to understand. He won't resist it as much if I make this message a little bit easier. I'll package it in a style that they will want, and they will like, and that they'll be comfortable with. The church suffers from this offer to change the results by changing the message. Maybe this was in the minds of the disciples. Okay, sometimes, Lord, you say some really radical statements. Maybe just tone it down a little bit, and we could have some more followers. Right? Just be a little bit nicer, just be a little bit less uh, my way or the highway here. Maybe they were thinking, we have to change things. But if we understand this parable tells us it's outside of our control, we don't need to change anything. We don't want to be offensive in the way that we share the gospel. The gospel itself is offensive, so we should be compassionate, kind, and gracious as we share the gospel. But we should sow the word and go to sleep. That's all we do. That's all we do. Honestly, if we really believed that people's salvation was dependent upon us, there's no way we could sleep. There's no way we could go to bed with ease and with rest in our hearts if we thought that people's salvation was dependent upon us. But it's not. Remember John chapter 1? Uh, John writes, uh, this is according to people that have been born again, not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. God alone brings about the new birth. Remember John 3, it's the Holy Spirit's like the wind that blows wherever he wishes. You don't know where it's coming, where it's going. It happens when it happens by God's timing, not by our own. So our cleverness is not the source of anyone's conversion. It's outside of our control. All I know is that according to these parables it's not my job or anyone else's job to make things happen. It's our job to scatter the seed faithfully, to nurture the seed as much as we can, to work hard at sowing the seed, and then to pray and leave the results to God with joy in our hearts, with an easiness in our souls. Let God deal with the results the way he wants to. Finally, according to this parable, the kingdom grows in God's timing. The kingdom grows in God's timing. It grows according to his, the, the word of his power. It grows uh, according to his work and outside of our control, and it grows in God's timing, not ours. The soil produces the crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. It grows in stages. It grows in degrees of transformation. It grows when God wants it to grow. God brings the completion, but it grows when He desires for it to grow. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. God, who began the good work in you, He started it. He'll bring it to completion, but He's the one who started it when He decided to start it. I can't do what God can do. I can only be faithful, and then I go to, I go to sleep. <laughs> God's not going to sleep. He's up. There's no point in both of us staying up at night, right? Let him do the work. I get to sleep. I get to rest, and let God do what he wants to do. So that's the first parable. It is surprising how the kingdom grows. It grows by us simply throwing the seed out and letting God do the work. It's outside of our control, and it's whenever God wants to make it happen. The second parable, similarly, it's surprising how big the kingdom grows. Jesus says in verse 30, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? What, what do you think the kingdom is like? Imagine the disciples answer. Uh, it's like a train that's derailed. It's like a really big car accident. It's like something that you thought was going to be amazing and then it just lets you down. Is that a good picture of the kingdom right now? Like, the kingdom is not working out so well. And yet, Jesus says, Have faith, it's going to grow. The kingdom is like a seed. It's like a mustard seed. Maybe the disciples would have said, okay, it's something grandiose and huge. It's a a giant fortress. And Jesus says, no, it's a tiny little mustard seed. He says, "It's it's a mustard seed, verse 31. When it's sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up. It's a mustard seed. This is a saying, by the way, This is uh, one of the first times in college when I had a professor speak to me about the inaccuracies in the Bible. This was one of the first places he went. I didn't even know this was an issue. There's apparently seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed. And when Jesus says this is the smallest seed than all the other seeds that are upon the soil, people say, see, he's incorrect. He's scientifically wrong." If you go to Jewish, uh, specifically rabbinical teaching, this was a phrase. This was a phrase that they used. The mustard seed is tiny. It's just like a a grain of sand. Yes, there are seeds that are smaller than it, but that's not the point. The point was, this is the smallest of seeds that are used in farming. This is the smallest of seeds that the people in Israel would have understood, and it was a phrase used. It would be like me saying that you're finding a, a needle in a haystack. I personally think there are a lot of things that would be harder to do, like find a contact lens in the Pacific Ocean. That's a lot harder than finding a needle in a haystack. But that's our phrase, right? So this is a phrase. This is a Jewish rabbinical phrase to say a very small thing that becomes a very large thing. Jesus says, it's a tiny, the kingdom is a tiny seed. But in the end, it grows up, verse 32, and it becomes larger than all the garden plants, and it forms large branches. It's a huge tree. The average size of a mustard tree would be 15 feet high and six feet wide. It's very large from a tiny little seed. And then he says this, it becomes so big and it forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. My Bible has that in all capital letters. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. I think it's an allusion to Daniel chapter 4, and it's a quotation directly from Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23. Both of those passages speak of a time when the Messiah's kingdom will grow so big that not just Israel will be involved in this kingdom, but every single nation, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will enjoy being citizen of the Messiah's kingdom. So what Jesus is saying here is, hey... Our our gospel message, the kingdom is a tiny little seed. It looks tiny. Think of how small this is. In the next section of Scripture, in the next section of Mark, the entirety of the kingdom is going to get into a boat. right? Jesus and his 12 disciples are going to be in a boat. If the boat goes down in the Sea of Galilee and they all die, the kingdom dies. This is a tiny kingdom. And yet he says there's going to come a time when it will reach out to so many people. Gentile nations coming in. It's not much to look at now. But it's going to grow. It's surprising how big the kingdom grows. Three ways that it's surprising how big the kingdom grows. Number 1, it grows from humble tiny beginnings. It's going to grow from humble tiny beginnings into a huge kingdom. This mustard seed's not much to look at. I when I was in Israel, For a semester, I had a mustard seed, and I taped it so that I could keep it. um, And I put it into my Bible, and I taped it in my Bible. And every time I opened my Bible, I had it in, uh, I actually had it in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus says, if you had faith, uh, even as small as a mustard seed. Um, So I had it taped in there. I remember every time I'd open it, I would open it to show people, I've got a mustard seed. And I would always, every time I opened it, I would open it, I'd go, oh, I think it fell out. Oh, no, It's still there. I, you could never tell, and then one day, oh, I think it fell out. Oh, it actually did, and it was gone. I don't have my mustard seed anymore. It's tiny. It's not much to look at. People would go, oh, that's cool. Like, nobody's like, awesome, a mustard seed. Most people would go, where is it? I don't see it. Oh, that's fine. It's not much to look at. Have you ever thought about how strange the gospel is? We are, we are telling people a story, about something that happened. Yes, it's a true story, but we're telling people a story about something that happened, and we're hoping that people believe our story, submit their life to our story, and the kingdom grows as we tell a story. We're telling a story. Very tiny, humble beginnings. Very, very humble. But out of this story, even though it starts with just Jesus and 12 disciples, and one of them is going to fall away. So 12 people In just a couple books, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 17, you'll read the line that the disciples of Jesus are turning the world upside down. Just a a few years after Jesus, and they're starting to to make waves and echo into the entire world. It's tiny, humble beginnings, but it grows into a huge kingdom. How does this apply to us? I, I think, honestly, we emphasize bigness In modern evangelicalism, we emphasize bigger churches, bigger programs, bigger outreaches. And if we're honest, I think we tend to forget that Jesus, Jesus goes after losers. He goes after those that are poor in spirit, that have nothing to offer. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, there are not many strong, not many wise, not many noble that were called God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So do we really trust these big programs, these big things will do what only the gospel can do? Now, I'm all for doing programs to try and reach people, but don't trust the programs themselves. Trust the gospel, and trust the Lord to bring the results when he would want to. The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to be great to wield its power. In fact, it actually helps when you're not that great, because the gospel's greatness can then shine through your inabilities. Charles Spurgeon's grandfather, his name was James, he once introduced his grandson to preach, and he said to the congregation, here comes my famous grandson, Charles. He can preach a better. He can preach the gospel better than I can. He is a good preacher, and he's better than I am. And then he turned to his grandson, and he said, but you, Charles, you could never preach a better gospel than I can. You can preach the gospel better than I can, but you can't preach a better gospel than I can. We all wield the same power in the Word of God and in the gospel. And from tiny, humble beginnings, the kingdom blows up and grows. Point number two, how it's surprising how big the kingdom grows because it's gradual growth, it's tiny growth, it's incremental growth, but then it can't be stopped. It's gradual growth that can't be stopped. Tiny, small beginnings give no indication of where it's ultimately going to end. Yes, the kingdom sometimes grows with revival, totally. Amen and amen, praise the Lord for moments of revival. But usually, that's not how the kingdom grows. Just think of the book of Acts. Twice in the book of Acts, we have revival happening, periods where thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ at one time. Twice. The rest of the book of Acts is one person at a time. Here's Lydia. Okay, one more convert. Here's the jailer. Amen, one more convert. Ethiopian eunuch. Amen, one more convert. Um, the demon possessed girl. Great, one more convert. Cornelius, awesome, one more. just one by one by one. The kingdom grows gradually, but it can never be stopped. That's Matthew 16. The gates of hell will never prevail against the kingdom. So I think we, we should hope for and pray for a revival on a grand level, but we shouldn't expect it. We shouldn't expect that. That's not usually how the kingdom grows. That's what Jesus is saying here. It starts small, and then it grows slowly but surely over time. Number three. It's surprising how big the kingdom grows. It's surprising because it includes every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, number one, uh, the kingdom starts out with humble, tiny beginnings, but then it grows to an enormous size. Number two, it's gradual growth. It can't be stopped. And number three, it includes, the kingdom includes every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just, just think of the disciples right now in heaven looking at how big the kingdom is. Think of their writings. Their writings have been translated into thousands of languages. And they thought maybe at best five languages, right? Maybe we'll have Greek, we'll have Aramaic, we'll have Hebrew, we'll have Latin, and maybe some other ones that come. But this has been translated into thousands of languages. The church has blown up around the world. Myriads upon myriads coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Would they ever have imagined that from such tiny beginnings that it would include every single tribe, tongue, nation, and people group? The disciples had an expectation about what the kingdom would look like under the reign of the Messiah. They had an expectation about it, and Jesus wasn't meeting their expectations. It's a very interesting question to ask our own heart. What are your expectations about what life should look like as you follow Jesus? The disciples started to get a little bit frustrated when things weren't going the way they wanted them to. What's interesting, if they would have waited, if they would have been patient, the very thing the disciples thought was going to happen that the the kingdom's going to include everybody, it's going to go to the world, it's going to get huge. That very same thing that they were hoping and expected to happen, it's going to happen. It's promised here to happen, just in a different way and in a different timing than they thought would happen. And here Jesus is really breaking all the rules by saying even the Gentiles are going to come in. This is going to go to all the nations. Next week we'll look at what the Bible says about the gospel going to all the nations. As we hear from our brother Micah, gospel is going to go and it's going to grow and we can be assured of the final victory of the kingdom of God. With many such parables, verse 33, Jesus is speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. He knew what they could understand, what they couldn't understand. He was gracious. This is a a verse in and of itself that we could dive into. Um, Beautiful master, beautiful savior, beautiful teacher, To be able to know when to keep pushing and when to back off and when to, okay, this is something you can't get, you can't grasp it right now. He did not speak to them without a parable. This is to the crowds, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He wants you to know the truth of his word. So, how do we wrap this all up? Two parables, two points. It's surprising how the kingdom grows and it's surprising how big the kingdom grows. What do we do based on these truths? Number one, just three little points as we conclude. Number one, cherish the opportunity for evangelism. Cherish the opportunity. This is a privilege. You and I know the Word of God. We know the Gospel. We hear God speak through His Word, and we can take that Word to other people. What a privilege. If you know and speak the Gospel... You are a channel for God's destroying of strongholds and resurrecting of lives. Every Christian who can articulate the gospel has the launch code and access to the button. You have that power with the gospel. You don't make anything happen, but you have that power as you share. So we gather every Sunday to be encouraged, to be equipped, and then we leave. We scatter. We gather for encouragement and equipping. We scatter for evangelism. So how faithful are you in cherishing the gift of evangelism? Scatter the seed. Prove yourself a faithful servant of God. Number two, trust God in your evangelism. Trust God in our evangelism. It's up to Him. This shouldn't produce laziness in us. This should produce confidence in us. If salvation were dependent upon me, then I would have zero confidence of anyone ever getting saved. But salvation isn't dependent on me, so trust God in our evangelism. Be faithful to scatter the seed and let God bring the growth that He wants to bring. Don't fret over small beginnings. Don't attempt to do what only God can do. And don't be lazy in what you can do. First, 1 Corinthians 3, remember Paul said, some water, some plant, some do the, the sowing. All, There's all sorts of different ministries that we have in the lives of people. But only God brings the increase. So let's let God do what he loves to do and bring the increase. Finally, number three, be patient in evangelism. Be patient in evangelism. Don't be frustrated. Be faithful. Don't be frustrated when things aren't going the way you want them to. And with good motivation, we want everybody to be saved. Don't get frustrated when people turn you down. Don't be frustrated when people turn you away. Be faithful in sharing the gospel, sharing the love of Jesus. Let God do what he loves to do. Let's let's trust God to do his work. And let's be faithful to do ours. As we come to a time where we are able to partake of communion together, we are partaking remembering that gospel message, the power of that message. We are renewing our covenant together as it were. God doesn't need to renew His. He is faithful and unconditional in His love through Jesus Christ. We just need to remember, as we talked about in Family Bible Hour this morning, the words of Paul in First Corinthians, that we need to examine our hearts to see if we trust in the Lord and we tr- cherish and treasure Him above anything in this world. And then we get to celebrate the power of the gospel even as we partake. The power of the gospel that's been working in our hearts, that we've seen bring change in others. I mean, you can look around in our church and see people that have come to salvation through the ministry of the gospel as we've gone forth in faithfulness. And let's trust God to do what he loves to do in bringing people to himself and let the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. God, thank you so much for the gospel. We want to celebrate the grace that you've given to us in Christ, even now. As we have the privilege of partaking of communion, we move from thinking about sharing the gospel with others to sharing the gospel really with our own hearts, to remembering the grace that was given to us in Christ, and to seeing that that grace motivates our obedience. It motivates our greater love for Christ. So Father, I pray that as we've had this whole morning to really examine our own hearts, really think through our relationship with you, you cannot serve God and anything else. You can't serve two masters. So Father, I pray that as we contemplate and examine our own hearts, we would see a hatred for sin, we would see a love for the Savior, And we would see power because of the gospel working itself out in our lives. May you be pleased as we enjoy you in this moment. We pray in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.